point is, is to try to challenge yourself to feel a little uncomfortable and to step out of your comfort zone, not just because, you know, you want to follow your curiosity and explore new things, but also because you, you yourself find out that you are someone who is capable of trying new things, doing new things, overcoming whatever was in your head, whatever you thought your limitations were. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with New York Times travel writer Stephanie Rosenblum, whose book Alone Time is about the joys and rewards of solo travel. Stephanie and I talk about strategies for making the most of solo travel and how social scientists have identified psychological advantages to going it alone in places like restaurants and museums. We talk about how walking alone, especially without a plan or an itinerary, is a great way to experience a foreign place. We also talk about how anticipation and retrospection of a travel experience can be in some ways as psychologically rewarding as a travel experience itself. This episode isn't formally sponsored by me, but I will point out that my book Vagabonding makes a great gift for the aspiring travelers in your life this holiday season. If your loved ones already have Vagabonding, you might consider my other travel books, like my most recent book, Souvenir, or my travel essay collection, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, or even my travel-themed comic book, The Misadventures of Winneman. Links to all those books can be found in my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. This episode is formally sponsored by Tortuga, which has a fantastic holiday sale going on this month and early next month. Just go to rolfpots.com tortuga to see their selection of travel backpacks and backpack accessories. And if you see something that would make a great gift or addition to your own rotation of travel gear, that rolfpots.com tortuga address will automatically create a discount at checkout that saves you 20% on purchases of $200, 25% on purchases of $300, and a 30% discount on backpack products amounting to $500 or more. You know, I took a Tortuga set-out pack around the world last year, and it was an essential and seamlessly functional pack that's more or less designed for vagabonding-style journeys. The sale starts on November 17th and lasts until December 21st, and if you order it by December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping and delivery before Christmas. Tortuga doesn't usually do holiday sales, so this is a great chance to save money on a great product. Because of COVID, you might want to order on the early side to make sure it arrives on time. Again, just use rolfpotscom Tortuga to shop for packs and get the discount. But for now, please listen in as Stephanie Rosenblum and I talk about how going solo can enhance your travel experience. We start by establishing the difference between solitude and loneliness on the road. Let's listen in. One thing I've always tried to explain to people, even before I was much of a traveler, is the sort of the difference between solitude and loneliness. There's this assumption that if you're alone, you're lonely, whereas solitude is something I've always embraced. And you you define that distinction quite well in the book. Could you explain how you make that distinction? Sure. I mean, it's it's not so much me. This is I'm sort of looking at the social science around this, and a lot of scholars have said choice is a very important element in this, right? So if you make, if you are making that decision to spend some time alone because, you know, you're problem solving or you want to restore yourself, recharge or reflect, or you just want to have an experience that you're not, you know, checking in with somebody else who's with you. You want to just see what it feels like on your own. That's a choice. That's solitude, you know, whereas 
loneliness is, uh, is something that you there's there's not a choice there, right? That's something it's a feeling that kind of descends on you given your circumstances. Um, and, and it's not to say also that you know people who are traveling alone or people who crave solitude don't occasionally feel lonely as well. But um, it's it has a lot to do with your decision to go into that state. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you really did bring a lot of academic research into this, um, a lot more than than travel books I've read before. I mean, you make allusions to different writers, literary writers, but then also a lot of social scientists. And so hmm. in in a thumbnail sense, I, I guess in you you talk about how prophets went alone into the desert, you know, to to sort of achieve a higher level of consciousness. But um, hmm. it's as if social scientists sort of have come to similar conclusions. So in a thumbnail sense, what are the benefits in in, in a broad terms about being alone and, and, and being actively alone as opposed to lonely? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They actually, there are quite a few. Uh, they, you know, are, so one of them is obviously this idea that, you know, there's an idea of restoration, right? Where, uh, one, you know, one of the studies uh, that was more recent, actually, uh, had found that, you know, even spending 15 minutes by yourself, and this is 15 minutes, by the way, like not on your cell phone, not, you know, like on the internet, but just like alone can decrease, you know, the intensity of your feelings, and it can leave you uh, like more relaxed and less worried, right? Like, so there is this whole idea of that it's a restorative experience. That's one thing. Um, there are, there's a sociologist, you know, who has pointed out that, you know, the, we all in public wear these masks, right? And when we're alone, we get to remove that mask. So you're essentially in an offstage space. And so that allows you to do all kinds of things. Like you can be reflective and, you know, you can evaluate your actions and um, this uh, one particular Actually, uh, I have a quick question, Stephanie. Yeah. In the COVID sure. era, do you mean mass literally or metaphorically? <laughs> I was actually talking about metaphorical mass. Okay. I did not even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Do not take off your mask if you're in public. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if you are alone. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's exactly. I mean, metaphorically. Uh, mm. And, you know, basically that whole, you know, it's that whole idea of that, you know, you put on a face to meet the faces that you meet um, mm. in the world. But uh, when you're, you know, when you're by yourself, you have this opportunity to kind of like evaluate your actions. And it's sort of, uh, as, you know, one of the scholars has called it a moral inventory, right? And that's whatever it is to you, but like that you get to take this time to think like, am I living the way I want to be living? Am I, you know, am I happy with who I am and how I'm behaving? Right. Like that's another benefit, right? We've got benefits such as like, you know, problem solving, um, you know, even just like and that problem solving can come from just, you know, you're alone and you're trying to solve problems and you're, you're taking an inventory of everything that's happened during the day or even over the course of a month and trying to sort of figure out like, what could I be doing better? What do I need to optimize? Um, you know, uh, there is also these ideas that uh, in terms of benefits that, you know, and this goes back to what you were talking about, about the, you know, the biblical prophets that, um, you know, that we can be more compassionate toward others sometimes mm. when we take time to ourselves. Um, this idea that like when you're alone, uh, 
it, you can begin to sort of shape your perspectives differently. And, you know, and it may be able to, when you're, when you're by yourself and you're, you're not, there's no voice of the crowd, like there are some uh, theories that it may make you more sensitive to the suffering of other people, you know, and you can bring that back into the world with you when you're not alone. Right. So that's another uh, potential benefit. Um, You know, there's, there's also the idea, of course, with creativity, Um, it's, you know, many people, there are a lot of co- creative collaborations, but there are also a lot of people who, you know, work alone. And, um, you know, one of, you know, a bit of research was talking about how when you work alone and when you're creating something, you often make mistakes or you do first drafts or, you know, whether you're painting or whether you're writing, whatever, composing, whatever it is, it's embarrassing sometimes, like that process of creation. And so to have somebody around, to have somebody there, is not only like possibly distracting, but it can also really like inhibit you. You know, you may not explore all the crazy, strange, you know, uh, options that are floating around in your head if you feel that you're on display or you're being observed. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, there's a fair amount of research about, you know, that creativity is best done, uh, you know, when you have that time to yourself. Uh, So, you know, those are, those are some of the, you know, the things, and there's a kind of, there's also sort of a little bit of fun research from um, Abraham Maslow, who, you know, most people know as creating that, uh, the hierarchy of human needs, you know, which in grade school we see as a, as a pyramid, but he uh, has talked about that he feels at the very top of that pyramid are self-actualizing people. And he often talks about the fact that self-actualizing people uh, are people who understand this, uh, you know, ability to have some privacy, to have some meditativeness, to, you know, uh, to be able to detach a little bit from the world now and then. Yeah, well, we can talk a lot about these benefits in the context of travel, mm-hmm. since your book sort of walks through uh, four different international cities. But before we get into those specifics, I'm I'm curious about one thing, because the, the act of solitude is different than it was 25 years ago. And when you were talking about yeah. finding ways of being happy with me or, um, you know, just other approaches to creativity and solitude, suddenly having a phone in your pocket in your hand changes <laughs> that. So what are the, what are the challenges um, that that world in your pocket that this great resource that is also, I mean, you, you talked about problem solving being something you engage with yeah. when you're alone, but often problem solving is filtered through your phone. Um, so yeah. um, how does that affect things in, in, in this age, day and age? I think it's very, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I'm also, I, mean, I love technology. I love, I love an app. I love a great new app. Uh, I love those apps that allow you to like identify plants you know, and, mm. you know, animals and things like, I just, I think it's delightful. Uh, I, there's, oh, like I, for instance, I love, um, all trails, you know, which allows you to sort of find trails, like where, you know, in different places, like wherever you are. So you don't necessarily have to go to the national park. You can just, you know, like search around you and find like great local trails and yeah, it's sort of I like crowdsourced by people yeah, in the area. So, um, you know, I think it's really about discipline, honestly. You, 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 it's the same way, you know, when you talk about solitude, like it is an intentional thing. It has to be that you're making a decision like, okay, uh, I, I'm really curious. Like what I do, this is sort of an example with those apps that identify plants and trees. Like sometimes I really want to know what something is, but I also don't want to spend the time that I'm outdoors in the moment and lose the moment, like 
fumbling around with the phone. So what I'll do is I'll take a quick picture maybe and I'll put it in my pocket and I won't look it up at that time. That's something for later. Like when I make a decision that this is now time that I'm on the internet. Uh, and, but you, because a lot of these apps, you don't have to do it in real time. You can just, you know, upload it later. So I think it's really about deciding just, you know, say to yourself like, okay, I am going to go for a walk right now and the phone is off. You know, you may, maybe you're not comfortable leaving the phone at home. So then, you know, then shut it off, put it on silent or, you know, make a decision that like, okay, I need to look at the map for this moment, but after this it's, it's done. Uh, and it's, it's not necessarily easy because it's become a real, it's, it's become an extension of your hand essentially. Yeah. It feels like this is, and will continue to be a big part of the conversation, not just about travel, but about all sorts of experiential things. Cause you know, I have that plant identification app. I, um, I also have one mm-hmm. that identifies constellations. It's great. I've used it in the last 24 hours. Um, but then also like since the pandemic, I've actually, I've taken my social media off my phone and I've locked logged out of it on my laptop because it's designed to sort of make you need it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, it feels like this, this is uh, the, the very beginning of that conversation about how these very useful resources can be managed in such a way that they don't take over our lives. Yeah, I don't, and I never do, I never, if I'm going to post anything on social media, I do not do it when I'm actively engaged in like exploring a place or having an experience. It's always something I do like either if I'm up in the middle of the night or, you know, later, like I said, when I've made time, like I have to answer emails and do other work. So that's part of how I sort of partition that off. Yeah. Well, one of the examples you give in the book is the, is the compulsion to, to live post to Instagram in the middle of your meal. Which makes yeah. a good uh, makes a good transition into the book itself because you start in Paris, which is a city I know very well, uh, and so you have so many good examples and food, which is you know everybody has to eat and actually it's a big pleasure of the travel experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yet there is a stigma to eating alone. Um, yes. So through the lens of Paris, how did you explore getting past this stigma and really learn to embrace? solitude as uh, a way to approach eating in restaurants? Yeah, well, I started, for me, I started small. And, and I, I should say, and I'll mention this particular study by this woman, Bella DiPaolo, uh, who is in California. And she does a lot of great research about, um, you know, uh, solitude and also just single people in general and like the choice to be single. And she uh, did some really great research about how solo diners are perceived. And so she like, and and it, she never published this research because the short story is is that it ended up being a null result. In other words, she the, the what people thought of so people dining alone was the same thing they thought of people dining together. Sometimes they you know said they made you know. Uh, snarky remarks and sometimes they didn't at all but it had nothing to do with people actually eating alone it had you know more to do with you know other things or just like "Mm, that person looks unhappy you know Uh, and and what was interesting and she's you know did some other things around this is that people thought absolutely no different of people eating alone which is just which is sort of an interesting thing so a lot of that is in the mind of the diner right Hmm. like not in the mind of people looking at the diner which is just something to keep in mind like if you're thinking about doing this but for me I sort of began eating alone I was always very comfortable eating alone at breakfast or lunch like for some reason (laughs) daylight uh you know that just felt like didn't seem like an odd thing uh 
to do. And you would also see many other people eating alone. And I felt for me, Paris is an ideal place, honestly, to eat alone at any meal of the day, because so much of eating there happens on the sidewalk or, you know, facing out uh, into the world. And so it's like the city becomes your dinner partner or your lunch date, you know, Mm. so you're just, you know, there's so much happening on the street. I mean, I've seen even people will just pause and ask if you've got a light, you know, or whatever. Like, it's just, you feel like you're still in interaction with the world. And it's not this, you know, you're sitting in some big dining room somewhere uh, in the corner by yourself at like a, you know, that scene in the lonely guy uh, with Steve Martin um, when he asked for a table for one. But um, so for me, that's how I, uh, you know, started doing that. And I felt, you know, I felt pretty comfortable doing that. And I think dinner was like a little bit more of a challenge because so many people uh, meet up with other people for dinner. So you're just, you just notice it more, you know, you're just sort of like, oh, I'm, you know, eating by myself. You have a quote in your book. I'm not sure if it's you or somebody else, but I'll paraphrase it. Basically, when you're not sitting across from another person, you're sitting across from the entire world. You you also have some you you bring in you you admit that you don't mind eating the McDonald's from time to time, um, but you also sort of talk about how f- the French consider food a form of art, and that mm-hmm. oftentimes you can, if you're solo, ask to see the kitchen, and the and the chef will actually respect you more for that. Uh, and so, yeah, what are you? What that, are you? Oh no, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask about your strategies for dining alone in a place like Paris. Yeah, I mean, I part of that came from uh, friends of mine who had who had traveled uh, alone, like you know, many many years before me, and they, you know, they're really experienced. They're they're married now, but they're very experienced, and, and they're you know in the food industry, and they had said like, oh, you know, particularly at a nice restaurant, you know, in Paris, or you know, they. They, the chef actually takes it as a compliment. If you're willing to like come alone, like it shows that you really want to be there, you know, that this is, you know, that you are looking forward to the food. And some of the suggestions they had given to me were to say things, you know, even just like when you're check, you know, when you go to ask for a table or, you know, you say to the waiter, like, oh, I've really been looking you know, forward to this. I'm excited to try this. And it really like it, it's first of all, it's just a nice thing to do anyway. And, you know, you can sort of strike up a conversation, uh, you know, with, the people working there, but uh, you often do get, I, I, you know, you can get treated a little bit better. And I started to notice that actually, like I found that people were incredibly accommodating. Like when I was going places by myself, it was in France, in terms of strategies, I looked for places that, as I said, you know, when I wrote that sentence, like that, where you're engaging with the rest of the world, like, and that I do no matter what, I'm not really interested in like being in a space and just sort of, you know, hiding in the restaurant. Like I want to, you know, sit toward the window or I want to be, um, uh, you know, like at the bar or I want to sit at a communal table, like where there is, you know, an opportunity to interact with other people, or even if you're not having conversation, just to like, to watch, like just to see, the world like that as you said that's part of your experience of the city like the food is part of it yes but also just watching what's going on around you and And i think a lot of this ties in to the concept of savoring things and 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 you i think Mm -hmm. you talk very generally about savoring but food is such a great concrete example for how you can savor things and you have this great example of uh 
of the the Buddhist monk uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talking about being a little kid and just taking like forty five minutes to to nibble on a cookie, which I, which I yeah. loved. It's, it's like we're better at savoring things when we're kids, I think sometimes. So uh, how do you how would you define what it means to savor, and um, how does how can that manifest itself uh, as a traveler? Yeah, well, there's this. This scholar who I love, um, Fred Bryant is his name, and he literally wrote the book on savoring, right? Mm. And he talks about savoring. Uh, he said, you know, a lot of people think of it as a gustatory delight. He goes, and it is, and it can be. But he said, but generally speaking, savoring is sort of the art of attending to the moment, right? And he uses that word, and I like that choice of words that he uses, like it's attending to the moment because it's something that you have to work on. Like you have, you, you take care of the moment. And so savoring means like being extremely present. It's not like, that's why the phone thing works against this, like tremendously, whether you're eating or whether you're just trying to like, you know, take in, uh, you know, the view of a river or anything like that. Like it's, you need to be in that moment, because the minute that you're not, you're not attending, you know, you're not attending to it. Uh, so, so savoring is really, uh, is, is really just that it's basically like caring for the moment and bringing all of your senses to that moment, right? It's not just like, okay, like I, I looked at it. It's what do I smell? Like, what do I hear? Like in, if it's food, you know, what is the taste? It's, it's sort of like, it's, tuning in to whatever's happening. For people who might be a little bit compulsive with their smartphones, and that probably includes everybody, <laughs> including me, what are, what are some strategies for snapping out of those home rituals and really leaving yourself open to savoring not just food, but, but these moments of travel? Yeah. I mean, I, frankly, I got a lot of them uh, from Fred because I just thought, his ideas were so smart. I mean, his, his, they're not just, I mean, he did research on this, but he, you know, one of the things he does, which I was actually thinking about given the moment that we're in, you know, uh, with COVID, but he talks about uh, depriving like one of your senses. This is just an example. Mm. Uh, so if you are, let's say like you're sitting on a beach and you're looking around, it's very beautiful. And like, you know, the instinct, like, I'm going to take some pictures. I'll make a video. I'll put it on Instagram. Uh, he, encourage you, for instance, to like close your eyes. Right. And so now your experience of the beach is the sound of the beach and it's the smell of the water and it's the feel of the wind, you know, like on your arms or, you know, like bird cries or just, you know, children playing in the distance, whatever that may be. Then you, you know, you open your eyes and he's, you know, he's talked about, and he's talked about, you know, there, can you close, you know, can you just like press your ears and like not here and then you're seeing and you're smelling. And I've actually thought about this with masks because, you know, I wonder, mm. you know, like when I'm walking around, I'm like, well, what is this doing? Right. Like, so now I'm not, I don't smell as well. And, uh, and is there, I've tried to sort of say, is there some advantage to, uh, you know, aside from a health advantage, like, is there another advantage in terms of experiencing a place by me sort of not being able to you know, smell as well. Like are my other senses, you know, tuning in in a different way. Right. So once, so that's like one kind of example of something that, uh, that you can do to kind of like bring you into the moment. Um, another thing he has people do, and I think this is true with a lot of travels, like you, you know, if you go to Paris or wherever you're going, and this is something you've been excited about and you've really been looking forward to the trip, 
and you get there and he has this uh this suggestion to sort of say to yourself like wow i'm actually here like i've been thinking about doing this for you know maybe it's years maybe it's months maybe it's weeks but the point is like now the moment is upon you and it's a sort of like he said a sort of self-congratulatory moment but it's something to do while you're there because it kind of deepens it deepens the moment like i had that happen to me even when i was just having a cup of coffee when i was in france and i was like i'm here like i'm I'm alone at a table, like in this beautiful city, like enjoying this cup of coffee. And I've thought about doing this and now it's actually happening. And these things are all designed to just kind of like jack you into the moment more so that you're not, you know, like just on autopilot. There was another one uh, he talked about where when you get somewhere, you should also think about that the moment is fleeting, which, hmm. you know, when he first said this to me, I thought it was counterintuitive because I thought, you know, I don't think about that. Like, I just want to be here and enjoy. I don't want to think about how this vacation is going to be over. But he said that in general, that makes us appreciate things more, you know, when you know that this is, you know, and so when, when you know that it's going to just sort of, you know, disappear at some point, you, you, you become more present. And so another thing he suggests doing is, take a, take a beat and say to yourself, you know, like, okay, this is, this is going to be gone. And what are all the things about the moment that I'm going to miss when it's gone? And this goes back to your senses, right? Like, what does it smell like? What does it look like? Um, you know, what are, what is it, you know, just what are, what, are, what does it feel like? Like, what am I feeling inside here? And, and, uh, and this is something that later then he said, you know, says like, even once the vacation's over, you'll be, when you take time to check in with your senses like this, you can actually sort of access moments from your vacation more vividly than if you kind of just roll through, take some pictures and keep moving. Yeah, that's interesting. The idea of saving something in the moment versus savoring at something, sa savoring something long afterward. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and actually when you were talking, I was thinking sometimes I, I have so many experiences in Paris that oftentimes when I, when I host people in Paris, especially people like my parents or friends from Kansas who maybe have not been to Europe before, seeing their excitement or their fear or their confusion sort of reminds me of how special it is. Um, yeah. And I think that that can be a good reference for savoring a place. Another thing that occurred to me while you're talking about the five senses is that I actually, my writing students in Paris, I tell them to embrace the five senses as writers because oftentimes we, we lean too much on the visual sense. Um, yeah. And so I have them you know, use the other four senses, often in tandem with what I call the flaneuring exercise. And you talk about the, the flaneur uh, concept in your book as well. So moving on from food, but maybe even sticking in Paris, since it's a city I know and love so much, what is flaneuring and how can this enhance the solo experience of travel? Yeah. So the, the idea of like being a flaneur, it comes it, it with something like Baudelaire talked about, uh, and the idea is that you're this sort of wide-eyed, idle stroller, right? That you're not, you do not have a destination. You do not have to be anywhere. You are a, you know, a man or a woman of the streets and you just, you know, you walk around and you're, you're part of the crowd. You're taking in the crowd. You are, uh, that sort of wonderful anonymous feeling in a crowd, but also, you know, you're, but you're also, you're still part of it. Right. And so, uh, flaneuring is essentially just, you know, like people, the way people I think you generally use it today is to mean that you're, 
you're strolling with no destination in mind, that the stroll itself is the, you know, the journey itself is the experience. And, you know, Paris is like, there are few better places in the world to do it than in Paris. It's a great walker city. And, uh, you know, I feel it's such a city, like it's such a street culture there that I feel like it's the perfect thing to do when you're by yourself. You can go at your own pace. You stop when something strikes your fancy, you know, you see something that uh, excites you or interests you. And it could be, you know, I, was, I remember walking by a window and it was like a collection of postage stamps. And I don't know how many like people I'd be walking around with who would really care, but, you know, it was interesting to me. And I didn't have that feeling that you sometimes have when you're traveling with other people, which is, of course, you want to make them happy, too. And that's a great thing. But when you're, you know, when you're by yourself, you have that opportunity to just explore your personal interests. And so, uh, you know, Flannery is essentially just, uh, you know, strolling around and uh, experiencing a place that way on foot, you know. Yeah. And a great thing about it is that it takes away those sightseeing expectations. It sort of liberates you from your bucket list in a city um, and allows you to surprise yourself, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And you can say like, if you, if it's very important for you to, you know, you want to end up at the Eiffel Tower, then okay, fine. Like wherever you're staying, then decide like, I'm going to head in that direction, but you don't choose the street per se. You don't know, you know, you don't decide like every little point in between or what you're doing. You just, you just go, you know, and that way, I mean, and you're talking about the senses, like you can be, you know, if you're there in the spring or, you know, summer, like when it's warm and you're walking around and all of a sudden you hear music somewhere. I think I actually, I think you talked write about that in vagabonding at some point where you heard it was like music from a church or some not in paris but uh and you just followed it yeah no that's happened in, in several cities um it happened in damascus i heard some gospel singing it's yeah. like really gospel singing in damascus so yeah and actually <laughs> that's another exercise i have with my students is called psychogeography where basically you use a strategy yes, yes. for going through the city it can be music it can be a color um yeah music is a great way to sort of let a certain sense guide you through without leaning on a bucket list. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the sort of thing that happens when you're being a flaneur, when you're just walking around and letting, or, you know, you smell something delicious or you hear, you know, this like a crowd and you're sort of like, Oh, what's going on over there? You know? Yeah. And, and flaneur is a, a, a French word and it sort of originated in Paris, but just so my listeners know, it can really be applied anywhere as all of these things mm-hmm. can. If I, if I'm sort of attached to the Paris um, specifics, it's because I know the city so well and I really enjoy it. You, you mentioned actually outside of flaneuring a study, I think in Montreal where actually of all the sources of transportation, including subways and buses, walking is the least stressful, even in the dead of winter when it's really super yes, cold? Yes, That was a great, I think that was out of McGill. Um, and that was a great study. I love that study uh, because they basically thought, yeah, they had people like take all sorts of forms of transportation to work. And at the end of the day, like even if it was cold and, you know, and it's, it's cold in Canada in the mm. winter, people were less stressed. Uh, by the time they got where they were going when when they were walking. I mean, I can attest to this, like in New York, it, it gets, you know, really cold here in the winter. And I walk miles to get downtown for errands sometimes. And I am much happier doing that than when I have to take the subway. Because it just, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's something, it's also you're outdoors. Like you're in, na- you know, it's still nature. Like there's, you know, fresh air, you're moving your legs. Um, there've been a lot of sort of 
interesting studies about, you know, the benefits of walking in addition to just, you know, the health benefits and, you know, the idea of seeing a place and interacting with people on the street, but also this idea that, you know, it can help, uh, you know, spur ideas and, uh, you know, is, is sort of good for your thinking. Yeah, well, um, you know, transportation is something we all need to do as travelers and walking is a great solo strategy. Eating is something we all have to do as travelers. Uh, eating alone is a great strategy for for better appreciating a city and um, the food. But then another thing you talk about in your book is museums, which is a big go-to for travelers. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the idea of going to museums alone and how that's a different experience. So what is, what's the argument for being solo in a museum? Yeah, there are actually, I thought these studies are really interesting around museums. Um, there, uh, the research suggests that going alone, you have a deeper engagement with the art. Uh, than you do when you go with someone else. That, that going with someone else is a different experience. Going with someone else is a more social experience. So it's just it's an outing and you'll get to see some things together. But in these studies, they found that when people go alone to museums, they're better able to commune with the art, right? That they uh, feel that they have a deeper experience with it. And then there's a, a sort of separate piece, which is that going to a museum alone can actually be a kind of meditative experience, a sort of as a potential for, you know, like some self-actualization, which, I mean, I know it sounds a little woo-woo, but when you think about it, like a lot of museums, like these are quiet environments. They are often, like the building itself is often very beautiful. They often have, you know, spaces that are spare and allow you to just, you know, like uh, just you know, stand somewhere and think and like look at a sculpture or look at it, some trees or, you know, some have courtyards that you can step into. So there are these, it's, it's sort of working in multiple ways. And a lot of the, like the conventional wisdom, uh, even around just learning at museums had been that people learn better in groups and that it's better to go as a group. But what these studies are suggesting is that uh, there is no difference that you can learn just as well when you go by yourself, uh, you know, as you might in a group. And in fact, uh, when they've done these sort of follow-up questionnaires with people who've gone to museums alone and then go- and gone with other people, the people who went alone also tended to remember the exhibition more and they were still sort of um, engaged with the artworks that really uh, that really sort of spoke to them more than people who went with someone else. Yeah, well, this makes me think, again, it's bringing the smartphone issue again. We've talked about mm-hmm. smartphone being a, 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 a temptation to multitask during meals. What about using it in museums? I ask in part because I often use it to photograph captions and art that I want to remember. Yeah. Um, I'm the same. It's interesting. I spoke to um, a, a one of the edu- an educator at uh, uh, the Museum of uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and she had even advocated for using smartphones to personalize your museum experience when you're alone. Like she was talking about, you know, that there's no reason that you have to go to a museum and you have to look at things in silence. You know, she was suggesting like you know, one thing a person could do is like create a playlist, you know, music, like what is it, what is it like if you look at a painting and you're listening to classical music? What is it like if you're listening to Drake? Like, what Mm. is it like if you're listening to, you know, deviate while you're looking at art, you know, like all these different things that you could do 
Well, and I thought there, I haven't done that personally, but I did think it was really interesting. And of course there's like really great, you know, audio tours as well. So uh, for me, the way that I handle that in a museum is I tell myself that I'm not allowed to take the phone out for the first like minute that I'm, that if it's something that I'm really, you know, there's some things that actually like, I'm curious about, or it's like a weird artwork, but I'm not really, it doesn't speak to me. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. So maybe I snap a photo and I, you know, take some pictures of the captions and, but the things that, you know, do something to me for whatever reason, I try not to worry about like, what is it? What, you know, I don't worry about explaining it and I don't, and I really try not to capture it. I actually, I talk about this in the book. Um, I had a really, I had a really absurd uh, moment when I was in, uh, I was in Florence and I had uh, the, the uh, Botticelli to myself. Like it was very early in the morning that I got to the museum and nobody, I, I don't even know how this happened, but nobody else was in the room. It and this is Botticelli's Venus, right? The the auburn haired. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. On the clamshell, you mm-hmm. know. Uh and uh and I was like, this is I thought I actually I thought the room was maybe off limits or something, and I accidentally walked in because it was a crazy to like be in that space by yourself. Uh and I was sort of marveling at it. I walked up and I was like, Oh my god, I can't believe nobody's here. And I was so amazed that like no one was there and I instantly just I took out the phone I just started taking pictures of the Venus I started taking pictures of the empty room and then I suddenly realized like what are you doing like you're alone with Venus and you have this moment to like take it in and to commune with this with nobody like you know over your shoulder and of course like as soon as I sort of clicked into that and realized that I heard footsteps and you know a bunch of people came in and you know didn't ruin it or anything but uh, it was a reminder, it was a very, uh, you know, is a very uh, good reminder that, you know, we we can kind of just reach for these things uh, reflexively and, and you, you miss some really good opportunities if you do that. So I, I try now very hard to uh, first look at something and enjoy it before I try and capture it because uh, otherwise, you know, then my attention's broken and it never, it never quite comes back the same way. Well, I think you mentioned Susan Sontag's book on photography, which was written in the yeah. 1970s. And now it's like you read that book and it feels so prescient because it's she's, she, she describes these things in the context of travel that can, can apply to almost anything. You know, phones are so, or I'm sorry, uh, camera phones, smartphones are so accessible now that um, that feels like, that's a constant negotiation. I mean, I like the idea of, you know, walking through a museum, listening to Drake versus listening to sort of ambient choral music might be different. And you bring mm-hmm. in the metaphor about how muse- museums can sort of be a space similar to a church that you can become yeah. introspective and reactive to the place. Um, and it didn't occur to me until you were mentioning that music that, hmm, well, I guess churches have music for a reason and mm-hmm. that can affect your experience of that place. Um, and so... <clears throat> Yeah, what, what what do you make of this? What uh, how's what's the best way to manage all of these impulses in the museum, phone or not to phone, linger in place in in front of one place versus many, talk to people or not talk to people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you have to decide what it's. I think you need to decide what kind of experience you want to have, right? Like, I mean, I I love going to a museum with people because 
well, first of all, you get to talk about it. It's like going to, you know, movie or theater. Like, you can have a conversation. Like, what did you, you know, what was that? What happened in that, you know, actor? Like, and, and even with the painting, you know, you can stand before something and have a, you know, have a conversation or discuss it afterwards. Or maybe you're not even talking about the art at all. I notice, you know, sometimes you can have deep conversations with people when you're looking at other things because you're not facing each other and it's not, mm. uh, there's a little bit of the intimacy. It's intimate, but not so intimate because you're walking and you're looking at a, a you know, another object. So yeah, there's this side, moment at which. Side yeah, by side so intimacy. Sorry. Um, I've, I've yeah, read about this yeah. side by side intimacy versus face to face intimacy. Right. So I think it's a part of this is like, what kind of experience are you interested in having? Right. Um, I remember, when the exhibition sensation was in New York at BAM and I, and I think it was, I, I may be totally wrong about this. I think it was David Bowie did the narration, you know, it was somebody hmm. I, I'm, I, that seems like it might be wrong, but maybe it's not, but I, I really was enjoying the audio. And anyway, everyone I was with didn't really care to listen to it. And they kind of like moved through it. Uh, and, and it was, I had a, it was a great day. We had so much fun together and everything. But I remember thinking like, oh, I'm a slow one. I'm holding everybody up. Like, I really wish I would. So I think some of this is thinking like, well, what's it, what are you going to see? Like, is this something that like you're really interested in uh, the audio tour or the work in the museum or specific things? And you want to have an experience like just you, you know, like you don't, you want to take your time. You don't want to be rushed. You don't want a, a sidebar, uh, you know then the answer is, you know, simple. I mean, another option, of course, is, and especially if you're doing like long-term travel, like if you're, if you're having like a vagabonding experience, like you can go to a museum more than once, like that's hmm. like, and you may discover something different on the second time and you may see something you didn't see at all. Like when you're with someone else, I mean, I actually, my husband, sometimes we've talked about this, like we have had dreams that are, seem very similar and we interpret the same dream like like a you know like let's say like a wave approaching the shore hmm. you know for me it's like abject terror and for him <laughs> he's like it's so cool <laughs> like, this is great and I think that's fascinating like where you know it's like it's a very similar so I think that works in art or in anything that you're looking at it's 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 really it, it enhances an experience to have that other point of view but at the same time it can also uh you know take away from your the the intimate moment that you may have not just with the work, but with yourself. Like that's hmm. really what's going on there, right? Like if you're looking at something, I, I remember being in high school when I first saw Magritte, and it was weird, and I, and just I was like, headless people, and but it spoke to me. I don't know what I just like. It just something. Uh, I, don't know, I just found it very. It just fascinated me, and I really didn't know why. Uh, but you know, it's it's interesting to have that moment to yourself, like to sort of think about and and maybe it pops up later in your life but I think part of deciding like how you're going to navigate these museums is you know what kind of experience do you have can you go more than once um, and then you know in terms of the technology I think it's best to decide before you go in how you want to use tech during that experience I mean some people are also better at controlling that than others you know some people uh, you know don't feel I have friends who just absolutely do not feel the need to take photos ever well, that, that's another thing that goes back to the pre-digital era. Paul Fussell, I think I talk about this in Vagabonding, talks about the anti-tourist, the, the person who mm -hmm. ostentatiously does not take photos, um, <laughs> yet, yet they still are a tourist. Um, it, it's yeah. funny, you were talking about the art that you saw as a teenager. I remember um, as, a teen, as a late teenager reading about Marcel Duchamp's urinal, the, the dot at the uh, – so that, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's called Fountain. I think I, th- I just thought that was so funny that when I finally saw it, I think at the at the Pompidou in Paris, it was like a pilgrimage to something I'd read about in another venue. And, and so one thing you touch on in your book is this relationship between anticipation before the travel, experience yeah. during the travel, and retrospection after the travel. And and so since, in a sense, your book is really about how to better absorb the travel experience before, during, and after. And so how would you recommend or at least comment on that relationship between anticipation, experience, and retrospection? Yeah, I mean, the anticipation stuff I think is very interesting and actually in some ways goes against, um, well, well, first of all, I'll explain what it is. Basically, the idea, there's a lot of social science research now into anticipation uh, and looking at the idea that the more you sort of explore a place before you get there, and I do not mean like figuring out every little thing you're going to do or, you know, like planning things. It's not about planning. Um, a lot of anticipation is something that you do to get yourself excited for the trip, right? So it may be that I'm going to go to uh, Hawaii and I'm going to read James Mitchell. You know, uh, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to read, you know, all these novels just, you know, set in France or, you know, things written by uh, French writers. Or I'm simply going to look at Instagram feeds from, Hmm. you know, uh, French design or, you know, um, bloggers who just talk about cheese. Like, so it's kind of like you're bathing in the place that you plan to go. Like you're not, it's, it's, it's different than travel planning. You could do some travel planning for sure, but that's not really what I'm talking about when I say that. What I'm talking about when I say that is uh, like beginning to learn about the culture, uh, you know, or, you know, and, and that can, that also includes like, you know, like just like looking through magazines or, you know, maybe you're reading the local newspapers if they're online, like just sort of seeing like what's going on there, you know, just kind of getting a feel. Um, anticipation, like part of building anticipation can even be buying your plane ticket like many, many months in advance. Um, and what the social science kind of says about that is, when you know you're going, like when you know that this is going to happen and you're doing these sorts of things, you're you're basically getting enjoyment before the trip begins, right? Because now you're thinking, oh, like, look, look at such an interesting culture. These are interesting things that happen there. Um, oh, I, you know, oh, they, this is a this is one of the specialties that people have, you know, in this area. These are, this is the cuisine, like, uh, and it that's. Basically, uh, Elizabeth Dunn is one of the big researchers into this, and she has said, uh, she's a social scientist, and she has said that uh, that's enjoyment in the bank. That's happiness that nobody can take away from you. Like, even if once you go on the trip and the trip is nothing like what you thought it was going to be, and even if, like, you know, uh, terrible things befall you on the way, the months that you were anticipating that trip is joy and it's happiness. And like that you banked it like that's And I, I thought such a like delightful idea. Um, Hmm. So that's like the anticipation, you know, piece of it. And she actually has quite a funny uh, story that she has told about this, where she was, she was planning to go to Hawaii and she was really excited to go surfing. And, uh, and she'd had all these months of like, you know, thinking about the trip and the waves and, you know, whatever. And then she goes and she gets bitten by a tiger shark while she's there. And, uh, I, I mean, she's telling me this story now, luckily she was fine. Like everything worked out. Okay. Um, but you know, she said to me, she goes, but look, she goes, my research was true. She goes, even though I got bitten by a shark, I didn't get to surf. 
I had all this happiness, all this enjoyment in leading up to that trip, you know, and that it, that never went away. So that's the anticipation piece. Mm -hmm. The, the, during the trip piece, of course, is now mitigating all of that and saying like, okay, whatever you thought this was going to be, like, you need to stay loose. You need to stay flexible because inevitably it's whatever, whatever you plan for is not exactly how it's going to pan out. Um, and if you really want to enjoy the moment, if you really want to savor your experiences, you have to stay loose. You have to be flexible. Uh, you have to like, you know, take things as they come. So, you know, you have to let go of a lot of what you were expecting. Uh, so that's sort of the middle part. And then, well, actually, the, while you're on the, the middle part, I want you to address yeah. the importance of discomfort and uncertainty, because it feels like in the smartphone oh, sure. age, especially, we can smooth yeah. off those rough edges and sort of cheat ourselves. So talk a little bit about why discomfort and uncertainty is important. Yeah, I mean, uh, and again, like, this is all, you know, when this is stuff that a lot of social science research around this, that they found that like the happiest people tend to be curious people. Right. And if you're curious and if you allow yourself to like follow your curiosity, you will inevitably, um, you know, possibly lead yourself into situations that are uncomfortable and, uh, and they can, and uncomfortable can simply be like, you know, like eating alone. Like it doesn't have to be some, you know, uh, Indiana Jones level, uh, you know, adventure or danger. Um, you know, we all have different thresholds for that. But the point is, is to try to challenge yourself to feel a little uncomfortable and to step out of, you know, your comfort zone, not just because, uh, you know, you want to follow your curiosity and explore new things, but also because you, be, you, 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 you yourself find out that you are someone who is capable of trying new things, doing new things, overcoming whatever was in your head, whatever you thought your limitations were, you know, you, you evolve as a person. And, um, and of course, like doing all of these things, you know, uh, leads to greater happiness. I mean, this is, you know, when they talk about, uh, you know, what makes people happy, one of the things is this sense of, you know, of, of accomplishment and the sense of, you know, like I can, I can do that. Like I can, you know, I, I, I didn't just like think, I think about it. Like I actually did it. Uh, I tried it. And it doesn't mean you have to like it. Like it doesn't mean at the, at the end of the day, you have to say like, Oh, okay, this is something I want to do 10 times. But you know, you want to uh, allow yourself room for that growth. And I, I, I'm, it's slipping my mind, the scholar who said it, but you know, one of them talked about, you know, this curiosity and that these people who, the happiest people are people who put themselves in situations where they know they need, you know, they know that it may not always be comfortable, but they know that the growth that they get out of that situation is going to ultimately leave them, you know, with more joy. So you have to, you know, you have to sort of build that into your mindset when you're traveling, I think. Yeah. And, and sometimes that, that uncertainty can be as easy as turning off the Yelp app and asking someone where to eat, right? Um, oh, yeah. Just the, that the, that old organic experience of travel, which is easier to avoid now, is a great way to to embrace the moment. Um, <clears throat> and um, I might just, you know, we, we also talked about retrospection. I might blend that a little bit with the idea of coming home, since you addressed that mm -hmm. uh, in your book. And of course, I addressed that in Vagabonding, too, just the idea yeah, that... Yeah taking that attitude of travel and applying it somehow to home. So 
that third leg after the anticipation and the experience, how does retrospection come into play? Yeah, I mean, part, well, some of the retrospection is simply replaying, you know, the trip, replaying moments. I mean, harder to do, like when you've been vagabonding for, you know, months, year, you know, or more, uh, that obviously takes longer. Uh, but, you know, this is something I had talked about with Fred Bryant about this idea of coming home and thinking about, you know, beginning to like replay the trip in your mind, which he feels like not only helps solidify the memories, you know, and again, this is about accessing those senses that we did in the moment when you were there, like the smells and the tastes and the, you know, the feeling on your skin or just, you know, whatever you were seeing and hearing, uh, doing that not only like helps solidify those memories so that you can, you know, at will recall them, but also, gives you pleasure. Uh, the research has shown that actually the anticipation kind of gives you more of a little pleasure boost than the reminiscing does. Mm. Um, but, and uh, I don't think they quite know why that is, but they have found that to be so that, um, you know, you get, you do get a little boost from reminiscing, but not at the same, not the same, uh, impact as the anticipation, which I just, I personally have found to be true as well, but I can't really put my finger on why that is. Um, and then in terms of, you know, coming home, uh, Fred Bryan has this great exercise, you know, that, that he talks about in his book about the daily vacation, I think yeah. he calls it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And basically the idea is that even once you're home, you want to still have these moments of savoring. Right. And he, you know, sort of recognizes that it's not always possible to do this, um, you know, in, you know, you're running to meetings, you're, you know, dealing with, you know, children, family, like there's just, there's a lot you're juggling, but that you take time out of your day, you know, a few minutes every day to do something that gives you pleasure. He would talk about how he liked to thumb through a journal that he had on his nightstand that used to belong to his father. I think it was a travel journal actually, and read a few pages. Um, but it could be, you know, taking a walk or it could be doing like a little meditation. But the whole idea is that you have these, um, you know, this, these moments that you're really present for. And, and he said, it's important also to kind of look forward to the next day's vacation uh as well again building a little bit of that anticipation and like oh okay tomorrow's a busy day but like maybe three o'clock i think i'm gonna have my little daily vacation so it's just a you know a tool basically to um to take some of those you know techniques that you can practice like when you're traveling back into your your daily life yeah what i like about that concept is they they need not be that long or formal uh, that it can mm -hmm. be a short yeah. walk. It can be, you know, revisiting a, a book or a journal that you wrote before. You have an actually a more formal ritual, if I understand correctly, Tourist Tuesday. Um, yeah. <laughs> d d describe what Tourist Tuesday is and, and how listeners might be able to implement their own version of such a thing. Yeah. Well, so obviously I was inspired, you know, by him, but I, I tend, for whatever reason, I, I had a lot of, Tuesday was like my errand day, um, and so I, and I always would end up doing these very sort of long walks downtown on Tuesdays. Uh, so they, and they would be like several miles and I did them regardless of the weather. And so I did find that like 
during them, I had like this time to like take different routes or look at different things. And so what I decided to start to do is on Tuesdays, when I would go to do these errands, I would build in a little stopover or a little extra, you know, activity for myself uh, to be a tourist in my own city. Because, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, gee, if I was somewhere else, I'd think, ooh, New York, that's a cool place to to explore. But, you know, when you're here, you, you know, you behave differently when you live somewhere. So uh, I would allow myself on Tuesdays to start running some of my errands, but then I would veer off and I'd, I'd go see the, um, the brownstone where Mark Twain used to live, right? You know, and that could be very quick. It's just something you observe from the street and enjoy. Or it could be something, you know, as simple as like, you know, there's that museum that I've like never gone to, like, uh, and I'm going to, you know, stop in there. Or it's, it could also be simply that I normally walk a certain route and I'm going to go take this street instead because it looks interesting. And also I never go there or I'm going to pop into that shop where there's always a line for bread because I have a feeling it's probably pretty good, uh, that sort of thing. So it was it's building in some of the behaviors that uh, I don't think twice about when I'm traveling, but somehow drop the minute I get home. That almost feels like uh, just sort of exercising your travel muscles. Um not only is Definitely. it fun, but it sort of keeps you in that mindset that you can just click click right into place when you head back overseas or go on a journey outside of your hometown. Yeah, and it makes your your makes your home so much more exciting and interesting. And then, like as you said, like when you have people come and visit or stay with you, uh, you know, you're able to take. There's so many more places you can take them to and show them, and you know, it it, it you know rekindles that excitement for you. Well, as we near the top of the hour, what are some strategies or even resources for somebody who is considering being a more um, intentional solo traveler? Um, and as a quick aside, you mentioned Live Trekker that you can actually—it's uh, an app that actually allows you to trace your Flanuri oh, route, which yeah. is which was new to me. So, um, strategies and resources. What what can you recommend? Yeah, well, okay, so Live Trekker, I love. Um, it's basically it's it's a it's a French app, and uh, but you you essentially turn it on like when you're ready to go somewhere. So like let's say you want to walk around Paris or any city that, uh, and you want to just be in that moment, and you, and but you like to remember like the route you're going, or you like to remember these sort of beautiful streets that you're going down. You literally turn this app on. You do not need Wi-Fi or an internet connection, and you just turn it on. Like put it put it away. Put it in your pocket. And when you get home at the end of the day, it has traced a route of everywhere you've been with a great red thick line, which is cool because you get to see it like overlaid on a Google map. Um, and then you can even see it on a, you know, with the um, like Google Earth kind of view. And it's, I, I've actually recommended it to a colleague of mine who then had it printed out because he went for some like very like long romantic walk uh, with his now wife, uh, and they were able to see like the, all the places they had stopped and where they walked. So it sort of, it can become actually a really great tool for uh, a souvenir, but I love it because it allows you to be in the moment, but you do, but it's, and it's taking the notes that you would otherwise be distracted, uh, you know, taking, I think also, um, you know, there, there are some books that are really helpful as well. Like a, a philosophy of walking is something uh, an editor friend of mine gave to me. Um, and I like these because there's, it just, that, that's, it's a book that just talks about walking, which, uh, you would think like, how interesting could that be? But it's actually quite interesting. And the whole idea of, you know, that, and, uh, you know, the, the books about forest bathing, I feel like these are 
these are the sorts of things that put you in the right mindset so that when you go out into the world, you, you take that mindset, you know, with you. And I think that that's really, I know for me, that's been one of the most helpful things in terms of, uh, in terms of tactics, uh, for, you know, putting yourself in that, you know, in that space in the right headspace. Mm-hmm. Well, as a, as a final thought, What's the best argument uh, for going solo? Uh, even with, and this is something we discussed in, in emails before we had this interview, if you have somebody that you'd really love to travel with, um, mm-hmm. what's a good argument for, for going solo even when you have a travel companion that you can mix in a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, because you're going to get to, you know, uh, you're going to get to learn things about yourself, right? You're going to get to not just discover like who you are a little bit more, but I, for me, I think you're going to really get to discover the stuff that you love, like the stuff that lights you on fire. And like, that's just like wonderful for your soul. But I mean, it could also, you don't know, like these sort of things can make you think like, Oh, am I doing, am I in the right career? Like, am I doing, you know, like what, how am I spending my spare time? Like these, these things can like spark like very big shifts in your life. Like when you get home and, and maybe it doesn't happen in that moment, but you're allowing like your interests and your loves and your passions to take over. And also you have that wonderful opportunity. Like if you've gone on a trip with someone else, but maybe you separated for part of the day or, you know, a couple of days, then when you come back together, you get to share that, you know, you get to tell this other person like about these experiences and things you've had. And in the process of telling someone about this and like conveying your excitement and sharing, you know, whatever it is you saw, like that's not, you know, only a wonderful thing to do, but it, again, it may also like make you think about like your life, your loves, like the things that, um, you know, the things that speak to you. So I think a lot of this is really about, uh, taking a moment to discover what sets you on fire. And that's, you know, that's really important. And sometimes in daily life, we we're going so fast and we have so many obligations that we don't have time to do that. So, you know, a little time by yourself, even if it's not, you know, you're not flying to Paris, but even if it's like you're taking a day hike in your hometown, like these, the, the stuff that's kind of getting you excited or, or just like, you know, opening up new ideas uh, can really be life changing. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Stephanie Rosenblum's book, Alone Time, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. Please don't forget to spread the word about Deviate by leaving a friendly rating or review at your favorite podcasting service. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.